Okay, good evening everyone. Hopefully we've got everything working now. Welcome back after a few days away. Meditators are diligently at work, coming to the end of the practice, the big finale. It's a time when it's useful to look back on where we've come and get a sense, therefore, thereby, of where we're going. And useful, I think, for everyone else to get a sense of what it is we're going through when we do the meditation course. Get a sense of the path that we're practicing. So I thought I'd do that in brief, go through that with you. Also just as encouragement, how far you've come, what great things you've done. It's my job to give you encouragement. So maybe you think, well, I'm just saying that, but really it's true. I mean, the, the power that you can feel and that you can see, that you gain from the meditation practice, that doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from all the hard work you've done. First in morality, the first step on the path is to regulate your actions and your speech. Just by not engaging in all sorts of distracting and, and what we call unwholesome activities, those activities which uh, distract the mind, bring the mind out of a state of, of peace, those activities that involve desire, addiction, aversion, conceit, arrogance, views, quite eye-opening when you go out into the world after doing a meditation course and you realize just how constantly we're bombarded by by uh, challenge, challenging situations and bombarded by other people's defilements and stimuli that encourage our own defilements. So it's great work that you're doing to come here and just to stay here put yourself in a position and where you're not engaging in all those things and moreover to regulate your activity so that it's as as clear and as peaceful and as as focused as possible so this is why we talk about running better not to go for a run while you're here uh, but so many things so many distractions we've done away with just by maintaining this this routine of walking and sitting throughout the day 
So we, so we call morality This is the Buddhist sense of morality It's not about killing and stealing Not exactly And there are many things we can say are immoral But morality really comes down to the focus of the mind Through the focus of the body By acting and speaking in such ways that We remove the opportunity or the in the uh, impulse to do unwholesome actions so that I mean that's the first step because it focuses your mind so the second step is this focus that you gain is what you're doing every moment that you're mindful you're cultivating this focus Focusing your attention on that moment One moment after one moment And as it becomes habitual As you become uh, comfortable with it or, or accustomed to it It gains a power There's a strength in repetition The more and more often you repeat something the more it becomes a habit, the more it becomes a part of you And the more powerful it becomes So you gain this momentum and this is what we call concentration You may not feel concentrated because your mind is still trying to play tricks on you And there's lots of distractions But you have a power, you have a true concentration in the sense that you're able to stay present like riding on a bull This rodeo bull The challenge is to stay on And so it feels like you're, you're Flailing wildly But you're staying on the bull And that's, I mean, that's reality Reality is not a peaceful Still forest pool Reality is inconstant, unpredictable It's unsatisfying, it's stressful It's uncontrollable And so it's not about what we experience It's about how we react to it Our concentration is about not reacting to our experiences Learning how to be focused naturally on whatever we experience After focus comes this whole course of wisdom And that's what you've really been getting out of this course Once you become focused you start to see things about yourself First you start to see who you are What does it mean by the self? What do we mean when we talk about myself? You start to see what's really inside What you're really made of you see that there's physical and there's mental And really what we're made up, up of is experiences We have experiences of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking And it's physical and mental realities coming together to form experience
You start to see how the experiences work together, how some experiences lead to other experiences. An experience of pain leads you to get upset, and the experience of upset leads you to suffer. You see how mindfulness leads to calm, leads to clarity, leads to purity. You see how something, desi something desirable leads to wanting, which leads to clinging, which leads to suffering. And you start to see, really in general, that nothing is really worth clinging to. And this is the slow and steady realization that you come to clearer and clearer, that you've really come to at this point in the Course. You've seen everything. Your mind has done all its tricks. Well, it's done most of its major tricks anyway. And you're really starting to see that none of it's worth clinging to. Trying to fix, trying to control, not worth it. And so at this point, it's really just about refining your practice. All of these stages of knowledge that you've come through means you come to see this. The things you thought were stable, satisfying, controllable are unstable, unpredictable, un unsatisfying, uncontrollable. It's not worth even trying to control them, trying to own them, trying to be them. And you, your mind pulls back and you become equanimous. Once you get to this point, well, that's where now you can see where we're, where we are, where we're at, as for where we're going. We talk about samsara and how the cause of suffering is our craving. Well, the cause of our clinging to samsara, to clinging to all of this, is craving. And once you become equanimous, once you let go, the mind really lets go. So this experience of Nibbana or Nirvana is really just when the mind is not clinging anymore. It's not reaching anymore. It's not seeking anymore. At the end of that seeking, there's the cessation of suffering. There's an experience of Nibbana. That's where we're going. Now, Nibbana is something you can experience just for a short time, a few moments even, but it really changes your perspective. It's not magic, but it is a kind of a magic, or it seems magical. Because once you see that, then you know what true peace is. And all this other happiness and pleasure that we seek in the world just doesn't seem uh, meaningful anymore. You know, at this point you realize that you're, it's a mistake to cling. But once you see Nibbana, it's not intellectual anymore. Your mind is really clear. You know in your heart. You have no doubt in your mind that Sabe Dhamma Nalangabiniwe Saya. No Dhamma indeed is worth clinging to. So that's the path in brief. A little bit of encouragement. I'll try to
try to come back every night and give you a little bit of encouragement. But thanks for coming out and appreciation for all your practice. You can go back and meditate. some questions on the website. So, um, recommended the Middle Length Discourses and the Great Disciples. Recommend reading the others, yes. The Long Discourses, Numerical Discourses, yes. Recommend all of those. Um, but they're they're a little harder to get into as all, well. so the middle length discourses is easier to get into. Um, but, you know, once you've finished it, I mean, the long discourses is fairly easy, it's just they're, they're quite a bit longer. Um, the numerical discourses, I don't expect most people will read through it entirely. There's a lot of repetition, and it's a lot of lists, and it's very big. The what you call anthology discourses. I'm not sure what that is, but the it's probably the Sangutanikai, the connected discourses. Connected connected discourses is just huge, and a lot of repetition. But uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi does a good job of keeping that down, and I definitely recommend it all. It just takes time to study. I think that's really, really about all I have on the on the shelf. That's interesting. Okay, I spoke about teaching as being efficient, and the question is, how does uh, there's no wanting other people to be happy? No, there's no wanting other people to be happy. How does compassion relate to this? Compassion is a state of mind. Um, when we talk about the Buddha's compassion. We're talking about the compassion that led him to become a Buddha. But once he became a Buddha, the compassion didn't drive him anymore, you know. And 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 actually true compassion doesn't really drive you. True compassion is, is what allows you to help people. But it's not that you, you, you're compassionate so you go around trying to change everyone, trying to teach everyone. So when, when the Buddha was invited to teach, it was compassion that made him say, yeah, but it's a functional compassion, you know. I mean, it's just a part of his enlightenment. It's very natural. Compassion is maybe just a word that describes that aspect of being enlightened that leads one to not be cruel. Because that's what compassion is. It's really just not being cruel. When someone is suffering, you you uh, you act in such a way as to free them. You know, when they approach you and they want help, you do what you can to help them based on their their wish. Now, the question you have is, well, what about the Buddha telling all these arahants to go forth and teach? I mean, the only reason he did that is because he made a promise to spread the teaching. So it's you know it's ba it's still based on this idea that people are asking people are looking for it. It has to be that way. I mean, for two reasons. First of all, because it's um, the nature of an enlightened being not to cling. So he had no desire for anything. 
but also because if you desire to teach, it doesn't really desire to spread the Dhamma. It, it's um, you know, it's problematic. It's not this. It's there's not a sincerity of of um, of reception, you know, as it as there is. I mean, I've, yesterday I was teaching. I was actually quite good um, at the Waisak celebration. It was quite um, people were quite appreciative. But you know, there's always people who seem to be taking it for granted, like as though you know I want to be there, and they're like, okay, so you want to teach me how to meditate, or something like, are you going to teach me how to meditate? Well, do you, if you want me to, I mean, I, mean, I guess I put myself out there. Yes, uh, yesterday, but uh, people seem to think that it's somehow something I want to do. It's not really something I. I mean, I'm not talking. I shouldn't talk too much about myself, but the wanting isn't the thing. It's that people are looking for it. And as I said, that it's efficient. It's just a great way to live your life and very helpful for your own practice. Explain that bad habits are dangerous because they increase the tendency to like or dislike. Hmm. The more functional habits cleaning the counter when it's dirty. Is there any danger connected to those habits? No. Um, I mean, not theoretically, but practically. Uh, most of our functional habits are associated with likes and dislikes, and those are the habits. Those are the aspects of the habit that we want to change. So a habit, in, as you're thinking of it, is, is many, many different habits, as we would think of them in Buddhism. Um, so the habit of cleaning may have habitual anger associated with it why do I have to clean or this is smelly or this is dirty or so on boredom maybe or maybe there's a, 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 a liking of it you like the cleanliness of the place you like the idea of having a clean house and so on and and so those become habitual and they build those are the bad habits but the habits you're talking about are a little bit more complicated they're like complex habits so they can change you can Purify that so that you still clean the counter But uh, You do it free from the habit of Disliking or liking or so on Or you know, attachment Of any sort Is it fair to say that Upadana requires Ditti Vipalasa? Oh, I don't know where you're going Sanka, these are not practical questions I don't have an answer. You need an Abhidhamma scholar to, to give you the answers to these questions. I think. Click and close all these. Answered questions. Been searching your YouTube. I can't find any information regarding mudras. Well, we don't teach mudras in my tradition. Vija Pacheya Sankara means that all kamas are caused by ignorance. Yes. Including the Kusla kamas. Yes. How do you explain Dihetuka kama? I don't know. You have to talk to an Abhidhamma scholar again. But uh, in a general practical sense, uh, an Arahant has no. Mm, has no karmic potency The things that they do And they have a special kind of mind That is just purely functional I'm doing this 
because it's really just because I'm doing it honestly but uh, but see the thing is you can't have that mind with evil deeds with uh, because they're too complicated they're too perverse that's the theory it's all fairly technical okay well I answered most of them deleted a couple that's our questions for tonight so thank you all for coming out I'll see you all I guess tomorrow I was thinking of maybe cutting down the days that I give talks but just give short talks no okay have a good night